Welcome to Unspoken Unsung, the podcast that celebrates the lives of people we might see every day, never knowing how instructive and inspiring their stories are. This is a special episode. Today we'll learn about extraordinary experiences of two people. The story of Larry Hall's Brush With Death was the first interview we ever did. In that interview, we focused narrowly on that one near-death experience, but it's both a story of incredible good fortune and an important lesson about strokes. The second story today is rare on two levels. It's the story of Patricia Craven Pfeffer, whose family tree includes the royal family of Hawaii. I was amazed to hear that Patricia's family was completely accustomed to its royal roots, so accustomed that she had little interest in exploring that aspect of her life. What we did explore was a story rarely heard directly from someone who was there. It's Patricia's recollection of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Here's a story some may say is a story of extremely good luck. Others may say it's providence. Listen to Larry Hall's story and you'll see why. Welcome, Larry. Thanks for being here and sharing your story with us. It's my pleasure. I'm glad you asked me. Yeah. So tell us about the stroke. What happened? Well, kind of in a nutshell, it was during the evening, late evening, in fact, early morning. And very simply, I got up during the night to use the restroom. And when I returned to my bedroom, all I remember is waking up on the floor. And something, I was unconscious, I think, because I had a knot on my head. I hit my head on the nightstand on my way down. But in that process, I regained consciousness and realized something was drastically wrong. I didn't know what it was. I had no idea. I was in a state of shock. And I thought, uh-oh. And as I became conscious again, I realized I just started to become physically aware that I couldn't move my left side. I couldn't move my left arm or my left leg. I couldn't move. So during that time, as I was becoming conscious about my predicament, as much as I could determine, I realized I had a help pendant for these type of emergencies on a nightstand next to me. So your right side was still... So my right side was okay. Okay, good. So I reached for the pendant, and in retrospect, I realized, thank God, I grabbed it, because had I knocked it, it would have fallen off, and I couldn't reach it, and my story would be much different. You said that when you got the pendant, you never thought you would ever use it. What was it that had you buy that in the first place? Well, actually, about six months prior to this episode, I just happened to one night be watching television, and there happens to be a shopping network. I just switched to that channel, just because I do that every now and then, and I noticed they had for sale what's called a help pendant. And I, I guess because I live alone, I'm single, and I thought, you know, that wouldn't be a bad idea for you to get that. So I just took the phone number down, 
called him up and said, send me that pendant. It was very inexpensive. They did, and it was sent to me. This was six months before the stroke, and then I had the stroke. Wow. Well, sounds like an amazingly fortunate choice you made with that. I think back, and I, I, I can't believe I did it, number one, but it was there, and it allowed me to have, like as I mentioned, the EMTs grab me quickly and take me to the emergency room. So time is of the essence with strokes. Time is critical. And if I have probably anything I basically can convey to anyone regarding stroke is just get help immediately. Because uh, there is a time frame with getting this injection of the TPA. And if it's more than three or four hours, the likelihood that you would have it help dissipates. So I feel everything happened quickly. I was taken to emergency. I was given the drug. And it helped me to now, a year later, regain probably 95% of my physical ability. Excellent. Tell us about your, your initial hospital experience. What was the ER like for you? Well, again, it's a little hazy because I wasn't in the best mental state, but I remember going in and having the emergency room doctor talk to me, very, very helpful. His nursing staff, and again, they were ready for me. And after they had given me the initial scan, he asked me, am I okay to go ahead with this drug? And he said, sometimes, on occasion, it can cause additional bleeding. And I said, doctor, go for it. So they gave me the injection, and the rest is history. Wow. Yeah. But once they had given me everything that could be done in the ER, I think a natural protocol is to move the patient to uh, intensive care. And I was there for a day for observation. And at that point, I had neurologists and other doctors come in and test me for the amount of damage that they could determine that I had physically. And then they moved you to a standard hospital room, or did they... Then they moved me to a standard hospital room where they gave me the, you know, just what I would assume is normal patient treatment, but it was in the stroke ward so that they were constantly monitoring the amount of disability and my condition. Now, I understand you moved to a different hospital. After the second day, I was taken to another Palomar hospital. I was transferred there to their stroke unit. Is that also a stroke center? It's also a stroke center. Excellent. Right. Great. And so, how long did you stay there and what did they do at Palomar? Was it different than your initial stay? You were at Tri-City Hospital was where you were initially. Initially. I was at Palomar for two days and they, again, just uh, did normal stroke monitoring to determine and uh, record everything that was happening with me. And when they realized that I had been given all the treatment I could be done on a hospital basis, I was transferred to a rehabilitation center in Escondido where I was there for a number of weeks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When, you, when you got to that center, what was the primary treatment that you were given there? At the rehab center? Right. Primarily, that was 
just maintenance, observation by the nursing staff, and then uh, twice a day, which I feel was the most important thing, was to have physical therapy, which they're very insistent on a stroke patient, people with a disability, to get up as quick as possible, no matter what your disability or, or how much limitation you have, and start walking. Or at least with their help and with the apparatus, they were with me going to the rehab center. And that happened twice a day. And I feel in retrospect, and again over the last year, that the, my success in large part has been with the physical rehab that I went through hospitalization-wise, and for me afterwards, and I'm still doing it today. Okay, physical therapy. And any other types of therapy too? No, um, I just do my own spiritual therapy because there is an emotional uh, aspect of a stroke where you go through quite a resurgence of um, emotional difficulties, mm -hmm. just based on what's happened to you and what could have happened to you and all of that. So primarily my uh, re rehab has been physical. Okay. When you were transferred out of the, that facility home, were you given occupational therapy or anything else of that nature? I was supposed to. And my understanding is that the occupational therapist comes to your home and ascertains the physical setup if you can have a life, if you can go to the bathroom or take a shower or go to bed or whatever. And in that regard, it was I didn't really have that. Um, they didn't send a, an occupational therapist. I was only sent a physical therapist. And he took it upon himself to look over my situation and ordered a couple of, of uh, machines for me to use to get in and out of bed. So again, my rehab continued at home, beginning with the rehab uh, technician, which gave me a lot of exercises and things to do. So. So when you first went home, you're still returning to the home alone, to, to be alone? Yes. What was that like? Uh, well, it was a little spooky in that all the things that I could do before, whether it's go to the bathroom or do all the normal things, especially my left arm being not quite operable yet, um, was difficult. I might mention that even though I live alone, in this whole process, I have a very good friend who lives in the same development that I live in that I was able to call when I was in the hospital and tell him about the stroke. And he took it upon himself to come to my home. It was a blessing to uh, take care of my cat, which sounds, sounds kind of crazy, but somebody had to do it. And he cleaned my house, what he wasn't asked to do, brought me clothes. So. I'm just saying this because uh, I, I wasn't really alone. I did have help, and that help lasted for weeks with somebody who could keep an eye on me and make sure I had the things I needed. So you mentioned that some of the recovery process for you initially even was emotional in nature. What types of emotions were you going through? I think it covers uh, a whole spectrum. I think part of it is... I can't drive, I can't do this, I can't do that, I can't do something else. So a plethora of things that you could do before the stroke go through your mind that, oh, 
I can't do that now, or maybe it's going to take me a while to do that. So that plays on your mind. Uh, it really does. And then where do I go from here? And probably more important in reflection was that I could focus emotionally on what I could do. And mm. I realized as I was making progress, whoa, this is, this is a stroke I can get through with help and my own determination and get back to normal. And I feel very blessed because a lot of people who have major strokes don't have that ability to ever really totally snap back. And so I, uh, and again, when I say emotionally, I thought in the process, and that's why I'm talking to you today, I felt um, kind of an obligation to get my story out to people to tell them whatever they can glean from what happened to me and my, my thoughts about the stroke itself, and maybe more importantly, what they can do to be aware and diligent before they have a stroke and afterwards, that there is life afterwards. So it's all a big picture. And that's, again, part of the emotional part is, is uh, really feeling like I can use this to benefit myself and other people. So that's why I'm chatting with you today. It sounds like you really discovered a, um, an internal strength. Did you know, how could you know you had that strength, I guess? I don't think I did. I don't want to find out that I have more additional strength again. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think this was enough. Um, but I think it is an example for people who unfortunately have a physical setback that it can be used for them to have a better life and do more within their life. And um, yeah, and to be at a point where you don't procrastinate as much as you did before because you now know, hey, this can be taken away from you. So mm. it's an exciting time for me post-stroke. So what kind of resources did you have for the emotional and spiritual aspect of this? Uh, mostly it's my own history of having books and readings and tapes that are spiritually oriented and uh, self-help and just uh, just items to help me keep perspective. Mm -hmm. I've had these in the past. You don't get to my age where you don't work periodically at improving yourself. so. I went back to a lot of the books and periodicals I had to refresh my mind on just about the possibilities. So for others that maybe haven't taken advantage in their own lives of that kind of resource, their teaching or that maybe haven't had a, a strong spiritual life, do you have any thoughts or recommendations? Mm. People that might be going through a stroke recovery or some other challenge of that nature. Do I have any thoughts for somebody going through a similar yeah, situation? What would you tell somebody if they were if they were headed home and they were going to be alone? Do you have any advice you would have for them or any questions you would ask them? I'm not sure I would give them advice. I think I would mention that you have a lot more individually within yourself than you ever thought you had. And sometimes until we're challenged, we don't know what we're capable of. Mm. And I think this for me gave me clarity on 
being able to do more in my life than I thought I could before. So, and again, as I look back on this, a lot of it, it's a good thing. I'm, I'm excited now about sitting here and talking to you, actually. <laughs> Imagine that. So it sounds like some doors have opened since then. It, it, matter of fact, you were, you were relating to me that you, uh, you had the opportunity to actually say some thank yous to the people that helped you. Uh, yes, as part of this reflection process, I don't know when it was, or when, but it was part of the reflection. And I think it's happened when I was in the rehab facility. And I thought, you know, I'd kind of like to go back if I can find them and talk to the nurses and the doctor who attended to me and just thank them. That's just me. Um, so I let that kind of just simmer. And then recently, I was sitting at my computer one day and I saw a stroke and heart walk in, in Oceanside where I live. And I thought, oh, I can do that. That applies to me. So I tuned in to the, to the, to the uh, item and saw when the walk was, saw what hospital was involved. And I thought, oh, that's my hospital. They're one of the sponsors. So I th went to the stroke walk. And part of my mindset at the time was, you know, I really hope I find somebody there that I could chat with briefly and find out if I could who the doctor was in the emergency room that I think probably saved my life. <laughs> when I went to the heart walk, I thought, you know, this is the Tri-City put on this heart walk. And I thought there must be somebody at Tri-City hospital that I could just ask if they know who's, who the nurses or doctors were that, that were there that day. So as luck, I wonder luck would happen, I'm standing in, out with probably a hundred people with red shirts on, all seeing Heart Walk from Tri-City, and I'm standing next to a nurse who happens to be in charge of administration for nurses at Tri-City. And I asked her, how did I get so lucky to talk to you? So she said, well, you've had a stroke? I said, yes, and I'll be walking. And she said, can we walk together? And I said, yeah, that would be great. So in that walk, I said, you know, if it's possible, I'd like to meet the emergency room doctor who attended to me. And she said, oh, that probably could happen. No commitment or whatever. Walk was over. Three days later, I got a call saying, from this very wonderful nurse. Uh, I found the doctor who attended to you. He's a great guy. And if you're okay with this, I'd like you to meet him at our board of directors meeting. Silence. I'm thinking, <laughs> I, this is not exactly what I had in mind. But I said, okay. So I went next two weeks later to the board of directors meeting met the doctor and I was asked to tell my story, which I'm kind of telling you right now, and uh, thanked him profusely, nice guy. And I, again, he was pleased and I was pleased that we were able to get together. As I told him, nice to meet him while I was standing up rather than the way I met him and for doing what he does. I don't know how many people come back to their physician and say thank you, but it's what I wanted to do. And uh, 
since then, um, the hospital took an interest in my in me, and asked if I would like to pursue this further in a public awareness capacity. And I said yes. And so they had contacted um, a public relations firm about promoting this. And long story short, although it's a long story, um, they contacted me and said, would I be okay coming back to the hospital and meeting with the doctor again, which I did, and they took some pictures. And in that time, when I met him again, and told him one of my one of my hopes was that I could go out into the community and do some public awareness uh, episodes or talks. And unbelievably, he asked me, "Could we do this together?" Very touched by that. I can tell. So we're in that uh, we're in that mode right now. We haven't put the pieces together, but I am again in a state of shock that not only can I do this, but I can do it with the expert help of the guy who I think saved me. Mm. So the beat goes on. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Do you have any lessons that you got out of this whole experience? What did you get out of it? Because it sounds like you got a lot. Uh, oh, I got a lot. and. I don't know that I've itemized them all. Um, I think everything from being exposed to getting a help pendant that I just took on, took that, how it helped me get the, the emergency help that I needed. Um, I think with anyone as far as stroke, and there's a lot of stroke awareness uh, information and education out there, a lot of it's common sense and all of that, but um, to me, the big lesson is be prepared if a stroke hits to get help as soon as possible. Mm. And some people want to take time to get to the hospital or they want to drive or whatever. My thought is have EMTs take you, they call the hospital and, and make them aware. Uh, the doctor's ready, he's ready to jump on your case as soon as you walk in the door. Um, so that's, that's, I think, the speed of doing that is the most important thing. Because we never know. I didn't know it could happen to me again. And I've done a lot of research on strokes and its aftermath since mine. And I've learned a lot. And I uh, hope that some of these tidbits can help other people, um, A, take better care of themselves, but if something happens, be prepared, tell your roommate, your wife, your whoever you live with, to be prepared to what they can do with you and to look for the signs of stroke. Stroke is, there's 300,000 strokes a year in the United States and uh, it's a leading cause of disability and third cause of death, I didn't know this. And uh, so it's pretty, it's pretty, a pretty major problem. So what I've learned, I guess, is just being uh, able to be to work as quickly when it happens so that somebody can get help. Mm -hmm. Well, you've offered a lot, Larry. I really, really appreciate you spending your time with us and telling your story. And 
I can assure you it'll make a difference. I promise you. Great. That's what this is all about. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. I lived in Hawaii back in 1969. The last time I visited the islands, Honolulu seemed nearly unrecognizable. The Hawaii I knew in 1969 would have been even more unrecognizable to Patricia Pfeffer. Patricia first gives us a taste of a bucolic island life that is a faded memory. She then shares a recollection of seeing Japanese planes attacking Pearl Harbor, so close that she could actually see the pilots' faces. Her first-hand tale of how her life turned upside down on December 7, 1941, offers a unique perspective of one of the most historic events in modern history. Patricia Craven Pfeffer. Welcome. Or, hey, I'm at your house. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are welcome. <laughs> oh, thank you. I'm so glad you're willing to do this with us. So your connection with Hawaii is so wonderful. Um, were you born in Hawaii? No, um, I went when I was three years old. Um, my father got a position as electrical engineer for Eva Sugar Plantation. And um, prior to that, he had gone to Annapolis, and um, he had gotten out of the Navy. And uh, anyway, he took this job, and then, for some reason, he went back into the military. Hmm. And um, so I, my first grade at school was on Fort Island there in the harbor. Mm -hmm. And then we moved over to St. Louis Heights, and uh, they built a house there. Um, and it was like really high up. It was the second to last street. So there was a view of total view of the harbor. Oh, it must have been so beautiful then. It was. It was. None of the high-rises in Waikiki. No, there was the uh, Moana, the pink one, and the white one. I can't remember. The Royal Hawaiian and the Moana, that was it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, matter of fact, I, I did a little research on you, and I Oops. found out your, your parents were really young when, when they had you, weren't they? Yes, they were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Matter of fact, if I'm not mistaken, your father was like 23 and your mother was 19. Mm-hmm. Something like that. Yes. So, what were you moved there when you were three? So, you did you go to school in like preschool or what was your what were your early years like in Hawaii? Well, we lived on the plantation on Eva Plantation oh. because, like I say, my father was electrical engineer there, and they had. Um, um, fabulous housing, and um, everybody knew everybody. And then they and they had their plantation store, and um, you know it was it was like a community. Mm. And um, so my earliest years were spent there on Eva Plantation, yeah. Eva Sugar so you were, Plantation. That was the country back then. That was. It was it, it, the middle of nowhere, wasn't it? Yes, it was. And we lived on the uh, uh, windward side of the island. Uh, mm-hmm. And so it was a little different. It was uh, it, it, it was not a very good place to go swimming, let me put it that way. Yeah, <laughs> there were yeah. a lot of things in the water that, that could sting you. 
Yeah. So how old were you when you moved back into the city? Um, well, um, I was just starting uh, first grade. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Did you start at Punahou? Punahou? No, I went to St. Andrew's Priory. Ah. <laughs> Because my godfather, who was our closest friend that I mentioned to you earlier, uh-huh. um, he uh, he was a minister there, and his uh, wife led the choir, and so <laughs> we were kind of involved with that, although we've never been uh, any particular organized mm-hmm. religion. Patricia and I went into a long discussion of her family ties to the royal family of Hawaii. We discussed the role one, a Cleghorn ancestor, played in the development of Waikiki's beautiful Kapi'olani Park, which is located below St. Louis Heights. It was from St. Louis Heights Patricia watched the attack on Pearl Harbor. I asked Patricia if she remembers her view of Kapi'olani Park. She did not, but what follows is history. Well, you do remember one certain day, I know. Yes. December 7, 1941. Yes, I Tell do. Tell me what you remember about that day. Well, I used to get up early in the morning, and an uh, hour or two before my parents got up. On Sunday mornings, we had a, um, um, usually scheduled a flight of our uh, Piper Cub that my father owned with another uh, pilot. And they were just all into flying. It was in the early days of, of flight. Right. And they were just all so excited about flying. So we spent a lot of time at the airport. Uh-huh. <laughs> I remember hanging on the fence there and, you know, watching the Piper Cubs. But anyway, we used to go up on our day on the Piper Cub was always Sunday. I mean, my father would take me or my mother. Uh-huh. Yeah, and that particular Sunday... Um, for some reason, we didn't go. And uh, a person who turned out later to be a, an ace pilot, um, Billy Ann, by the name of Billy Anderson, who was the half owner with my father, he took it up. And so he saw the planes coming in. He saw the Japanese planes coming in. I think he just tried to get out of the way. I bet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So he's fortunate he didn't get shot down, or no, he didn't. Wow. No, he got out of the way. I, I guess they had their plan and they didn't deviate from it. Yeah. I know as they flew over, they flew directly over my balcony, over our house, and as because we were on the second to last street, so I could actually see the pilot because they would kind of roll over and go into pearl from this roll. Mm. And um, so right over our house was when they rolled over and went in zooming into Pearl Harbor. Wow. And so I would see the pilots. I definitely saw the rising suns. And um, I thought it was really strange. And then I started noticing plumes of water out in the harbor. Because like I say, we had a direct view of of the harbor. And I thought that was really weird, and I watched for a while, and then I saw all this black smoke. I actually saw the Arizona blow up. And so I went in, and I woke up my father and mother, and I said, 
there's something really funny going on in in the harbor. And um, so my father just sort of like levitated out of bed, and he says, oh, this is it. I mean, he was expecting it. And um, at that point, he had gotten back into the Navy. Navy. He was a young mm-hmm. naval officer. I don't know, a, a uh, beginning rank naval officer at that time. Ensign or something like lieutenant or something. Anyway, he, um, <clears throat> he handled, handed a big sack to my mother and said, put groceries in this, you may have to head for the hills. And uh, and he had a pearl-handled revolver that didn't have any bullets, and he handed you that. (laughs) (laughs) No bullets. (laughs) No bullets. You could throw it at somebody. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, before before you let the chaps get you, he said, shoot me and then yourself. Wow, you remember hearing that? I remember. Well, I remember her telling me that that's what he told oh, her. Oh wow! Because I was going to say how traumatic. For I didn't know it as at that time. Yeah, no, yeah. I didn't know she'd been told that. But he didn't want. So you were us. eight years old at this I, time. I was eight years old. Yeah. Yeah. So how vivid is all this? Is it still pretty vivid for you? It's very vivid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you were far enough. St. Louis Heights is far enough to where the concussion of the bombs wasn't overwhelming, but you could see all that because you were out on the deck. Mm-hmm. And and then you you obviously you must have seen when some of the major explosions like the Arizona mm-hmm. going. When the Arizona blew up, it was just all this black smoke, and then you just couldn't really see much anymore. You know, it, it was. Um, I could see these plumes of water. It was just. I didn't know what was making the plumes. Yeah. And I was fascinated watching these plumes of, of water out in the harbor. So they must, you know, the when they dropped those torpedoes, they must have made huge big plumes of yeah. water. Anyway, I could see them from St. Louis Heights. And uh, so when the Arizona blew up, that's when I, I you know, went in and, and told my father. So did you take cover then and go hide someplace? No. They never bothered the civilian population or the civilian areas. Mm -hmm. Um, They just flew right over them. So your your father obviously had to go report to duty right away, I would assume. Absolutely. He just threw on his clothes, and we didn't see him for three days. I mean, he threw on his uniform, and um, the only way he could get there was in a brand-new yellow Buick convertible with red seats. Mm-hmm. And this is what he drove out to Pearl Harbor in. So you can imagine they had fun, you know, strafing him on their way in. So when we got the car back, it's amazing it was still drivable because there were holes all over. Really? hmm Wow. Wow. So it sounds as though you were more fascinated than terrified by the attack as it was happening. Absolutely. Uh-huh. I wasn't afraid at all. Yeah. Well, I would imagine your parents had a different point of view. Oh, I'm sure they <laughs> did. I'm sure they did. And my father's uh, sister and mother had been living over in the islands for years. And uh, so they were living down in Waikiki. Um, well, your place, your place in, in um, St. Louis Heights, your maternal grandmother was living with you, was she not? Yes, she was. Yeah, mm-hmm. she was one of the Claghorns, the yes. famous Claghorns. Yes. Yes. 
So what happened after that? Did they pretty much put everybody on blackout at night? and Immediately, yes. Mm-hmm. And they said, if we see a light, we're shooting first and asking questions second. Wow. So everybody was pretty diligent. I mean, I don't think you could see a crack of light anywhere on the island. Mm-hmm. No, we were, we were all very uh, diligent about that. And we had one room where we had all complete, you know, blackout, black, uh, I don't know, were they curtains and blackout paper? Blackout curtains or whatever? Yeah. Uh-huh. Where we could go, where we could actually have a light on. Hmm. I imagine there was quite a, quite a concern about any of the Japanese people that were living on the island, too. Yes, as a matter of fact, the house had recently been completed that we had on St. Louis Heights. And um, <clears throat> the story was later that the contractor um, was a general in the Japanese army, and they um, found him with his kimono on. They pulled off his kimono, and he had a Japanese uniform on. Wow. Uh, so a Japanese general. So and were there any, any kids that you knew that were, that, who were Japanese you went to school with? Um, actually, uh, at that point, I was going to St. Andrew's Priory, and they were almost all Japanese. Wow. <laughs> um, and um, I don't remember. Of course, it, it was holiday season, wasn't it, at that time, around, around December. Um, well, it certainly must have disrupted school. Yeah, because I don't remember going to school at all after that. Ah, Okay. What, what did they do with you then? Well, it was only, we were evacuated just a month later. Ah. So back to the mainland. Mm-hmm. And, and where did you go to on the mainland? Um, well, it's, um, we ended up landing in uh, Los Angeles. Hmm. And, um, but our... Troop transport. We were put on a troop transport. Ah, yeah. So they were just packing, just the women and children, they were just packing them into these, into these um, huge rooms with, all kind, with lots of bunks in them. And, and uh, so there were old people, young people, crying babies, everything. Wow. You know, just to evacuate them to uh, dependents and whatnot. And, and um, then they were also evacuating some, a lot of injured people. And uh, so that goes into an interesting story about my grandmother. She had just had a stroke. And my mother told her, Lil, you, Mother, you're going to walk up to that ship and you're going to walk up that gang plant, plank and you're going to get on that ship. And stroke or no stroke, and by golly, she did. But when they got on board, um, Mother asked to see the uh, uh, physician uh, in charge, I guess, of the people. And, and uh, she said, my mother will not survive this trip. And this statement was full of crying kids and, you know. And uh, <clears throat> so the, he said, well, there's only one place that's quiet on this ship. And mother said, okay, fine, where is it? Well, it's the brig. 
<laughs> the brig. Yes. So my grandmother was in jail the whole way across. And the door was probably about six inches thick uh-huh. metal door wow. with a tiny little window and bars in the window. I'll never forget it. That had to be horribly uncomfortable, I would imagine. Obviously, there's no air conditioning. <laughs> I don't, I, I don't know. It must have been, but um, we would visit her. We'd spend a lot of time down there in the brig visiting my <laughs> grandmother. <laughs> she was perfectly happy. She was just delighted to get out of the mayhem that was going on. Wow. Was that kind of traumatic for you? I loved it. I just thought the whole thing was a big adventure. <laughs> the, <clears throat> the most fun at all were the... Uh, uh, the uh, was the fact that the ship was zigzagging all across oh, yeah. the Pacific because we were the largest marine troop transport um, of a convoy of three, and we broke convoy because they were there were a lot of Jap- small Japanese subs that were in the harbor and whatnot. So I don't know. We broke convoy anyway, and uh, zigzagged. It took us ten days to get across instead mm. of the usual five. And um, so I, every time the ship would zig or zag, everything would go to one side uh, or the other side. Well, uh-huh. when you went to eat dinner or something, you, you end up with somebody down the line's pl- <laughs> plate of food. They, <laughs> yours would be, would be way down at the other end. <laughs> and they had to rope the chairs together because the chairs would just be sliding all over the place. So they had to rope them together, so we'd just get kind of yanked over here and then yanked mm-hmm. over there. And the whole trip, we wore life jackets, never took them off. And did you get up on deck, or were you, did you have to stay down below? No, no, no. We were up on deck. In fact, um, when we were leaving the islands, my, my mother was very sentimental about the islands, and... Um, so when we were leaving, she, it was customary to throw your lay over. Yes, yes. And it washes to shore, you'll come back. Yeah. So she couldn't do that because there were Japanese subs uh, roaming around. Oh, yeah. And um, so what she, you know, what we did was we went and stood on the railing, on the balcony, uh, on the... Uh, not balcony, the just the railing right. there of the ship. I don't know what you call it on the deck. Yes. And um, I was leaning over, you know, looking, kind of looking at the water, and and every child had a assigned um, a sailor, and so mine happened to be the cook, which I was very fortunate. But anyway, <laughs> uh, he'd bring me goodies all the time. But anyway, um, we were, he was always to be around that child, with that child. And so he was there, and my mother was there, and I was there, and all of a sudden I saw what I thought was this big fish go alongside of the, the ship. And I said, oh, look at the, look at the fish. I'll st- I still see it in my mind. It was a torpedo. And really? Yes. And we had just zigged at the right time that that torpedo went along the side rather than in, into the oh ships. Oh, my. So, I mean, the fact that we ever got here, they said, was a miracle. 
because um, we had to break radio silence uh, because we had broken convoy. We had to, uh, to let them know in Los Angeles that we were coming in. And um, please don't... They started shooting at us, our own... Um, um, batteries on shore started shooting at us and so they had to break radio silence because they didn't they had radio silence at that time because they didn't want the submarines to know where we were and so um anyway and say hey it's us you know and uh wow how close were the shots coming to the ship they were coming too close and they you know uh, they they would have downed us if we hadn't so we had to break radio silence, wow. which was a no-no. And uh, so it was a, a pretty tricky um, crossing because it took like 10 days rather than five. And we went way up around Alaska. It mm. was freezing. You know, you can imagine someone from Honolulu. Yes. Patricia lived in Los Angeles in the time immediately following her family's evacuation from Hawaii. She attended school there with children of Hollywood's elite. When her father returned home, the family moved to Virginia. Patricia completed her education, married a naval aviator, and returned ultimately to California. What a life, what a life. Really? I think your life is fascinating, absolutely. Are you serious? I am way serious. God, you're so boring. Really? Oh, that's interesting. Well, I you mean, hear yeah. that? Hear that? <laughs> <laughs> My life is fascinating. <laughs> I am a fascinating person. <laughs> so, if you have any any thoughts about some of the experiences you had about life lessons or or things, is there anything that you would change about your life looking back? Do you have any regrets or things you wish you could do differently? Oh, I do. Yeah, but they're all stupid mistakes that I made. Hmm. And uh, too many to even mention. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. But the good thing that I did is I have three great kids. Oh, yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. Well, congratulations. I guess we can call it a day for today. Okay. But I really, really appreciate you spending this time with us. And well, thank hearing you. Hearing about your life, and it is fascinating. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, it's not... Yeah, it's it's not the usual, is it? But then your mother had a very, you know, I wouldn't say it was a very happy time, but uh, it was very interesting experiences. Yeah. I would imagine that a lot of the, the things you went through really gave you a lot of character and strength. What doesn't kill you will make you stronger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's the best part of your life as you look back? Right now, actually, I mean, I, in, in spite of being the age that I am and everything, which is a bit debilitating, um, it's really been great. The kids have been great. And uh, so it's really, you know, uh, it's a good life. You know? Oh, wonderful. Well, once again, thank you. And we'll speak again, I hope. Well, I hope so. Anytime. Yeah, Always thanks. welcome. There you have it, the roots of Unspoken Unsung. As we've grown, we hope you've enjoyed the episodes we presented in 2019. And if you have, 
It would be very helpful to us if you'd post a review and rate our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever your preferred podcast source may be. The Unspoken Unsung Team, Martin Danner, Ken Langen, and me, Dan Danner, want to thank you for listening. We wish you a wonderful year ahead in 2020. Podcast theme music, Hope Not Hate, was written and performed by David Wynne Jones for Zapsplat. Thank you so much again for listening. Happy New Year.